54, verses 43 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus said when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Scripture that we read just a moment ago. John chapter 4, verse 43. If you're visiting, we have been in a study in the gospel according to John. We started several months ago. We have seen that John is a different gospel, different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not that he disagreed with them. Oh, no, he did not. He verified everything they had said. But John, he is the thinker, the philosopher, the theologian of the four gospelers. And he writes with a depth. All of us inspired by the Holy Spirit, but John, God used John to write in greater depth than Matthew and Mark and Luke. John did not include in his gospels the great in his gospel the great number of miracles. For instance, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this great host of miracles that Jesus did. John only only records very few. So why this one this morning? The healing of this official's son. Well, there's a reason John put it there. This This passage before us this morning, you're going to see, is wider, is deeper than you think it is. And I am really anxious to tell you about it. Before we do, let's pray together. Our Father, first, all of us together as your priests, before your throne, bringing the world around us to you in prayer. We just simply this morning say amen to what Tyler prayed for our seniors. Oh, Father, amen and amen. So bless 
And we pray that together. And now as we open your word, oh, Father, John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. He can't teach so that we'll be changed the core of our being and grow in Christ. So once more this morning, we cast ourselves upon you. And we're simply your children asking their father to teach them. Oh, Father, teach us. Teach us. Tell us a story again and again in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Question before the house this morning. What makes us pray? Desperate prayers. Jesus had been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Jerusalem's in the south. Galilee, his home, is in the north. He went home to Galilee by way of the shortest route straight north through Samaria. The last two weeks we saw that he stopped over in the Samaritan town of Sakar. He stayed there for two days. As a people, it's unexpected through our eyes, they welcomed him. They wanted to hear more from this man who claimed to be the Messiah. But after two days, he renewed his trek northward to home in Galilee. The route he chose took him to Cana in the hill country of Galilee. He would probably, probably intended there to, to drop down from the hill country into Capernaum, where he had recently moved. Well, that's the geographical context of this scene. To introduce this scene, there's an ironic statement made by John that seems to be a contradiction as this scene is introduced. Now, Jesus was returning, this is important, Jesus was returning home to Galilee. John remarks that Jesus had said, he says this in verse 44, look at it. Now, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, John was saying that Jesus said, I will have no honor in Galilee. Now, why would Jesus say that? I think we can understand it as a universal truth. You know, I was thinking one of these, one of these students, one of you may go on from high school, college, graduate school, and become president of the United States. May happen. Now, I hate to disappoint you, but when you become president of the United States and you return to Fayette County, they're not going to bow down and scrape. You know, they're going to say, oh, that's Luke or that's Mary or that's George, that's Carol. They went to the local elementary school. My next door neighbor taught them in second grade. They went to junior high school. 
went here, high school. I can tell you some dirt on him. That's what they'll say. Say, you know, his his parents, her parents, they they live here, known them all our lives. That's what people are going to say. They don't look at you as being present. You're just. And they will say things like, when you're talking to them like a president, they'll say, hey, you're talking to us. We know you. You know, when Jesus, let me tell you, when Jesus stood in Nazareth at the synagogue there where he had grown up, he stood there after he began his ministry with his first visit back to Nazareth. Luke tells us about this. And he says, he reads from Isaiah, and he says, that's it's about the Messiah. And he said, that's me. He claimed to be the Messiah. And you know what? They stood up and applauded and clapped and cheered. And he said, no, I was there. I know what Luke said. They said, are you kidding us? Who do you think you are? We know. They said, they actually said, you're Joseph's son. You're Mary's son. You're the carpenter's son. We've seen you running around our streets. You know, since you were a baby. How dare you claim to be Messiah? That's blasphemy. And his own neighbors took him out to a high precipice near Nazareth and tried to throw him off. So that's probably the reason Jesus uttered the comment. And I prophet, no matter how great Isaiah, Jeremiah, he's not going to be honored. Think about what they did to Isaiah. Think about what they did to Jeremiah. That's one reason that Jesus said that. But look at what John says next. And here comes what seems to be a contradiction. When he came to Galilee, look at it now. It's important. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. The home folks welcomed him. Now, that's an odd thing to say right after he suggested that Jesus was not going to be respected by the home folks. But it is understandable if you read the next phrase. And this is what this is. This is a theme that runs throughout this miracle, this scene. Why did they welcome him? Look at it having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. John gave the reason that they wanted to see him. They were eager to see him. They had been at the feast of Jerusalem. They saw all these miracles he had done. Look on your scripture sheet at John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing, those signs were miracles. His name was now known all over Israel, the miracle worker. No man in the history of the world had ever done what he was doing. They wanted to see more. They had probably, this was the main path. This was the main route northward out of Jerusalem through Samaria. It was a trade route. They had probably been expecting him. 
been looking every day. Certainly he'll come home this way. You can see them running out to greet Jesus and his disciples. What's he going to do next? That would have been their attitude. Now the reason I have taken time, you said, well, this is not about Jesus healing the nobleman's son. Yes, it is. Uh, The reason I've taken time to explain these two ironic sentences is that they're directly related to what transpires next. So John tells us the scene, there's a, but there's another, before we come to the main body, there's another puzzlement. So John tells us this scene took place in Cana. All right. What happened to Cana? You know that. You were here several weeks ago. We talked about it. Jesus, at a huge wedding party, at a huge wedding feast, turned water into the best best wine that's ever been made in the history of the world. John starts talking about that. This, this, what what transpires is a well-known member of Herod's staff. Remember Herod? was the king of Galilee. It was under Roman authority. It was under Roman rule, but they had appointed him king. And a member of Herod's court lived in Capernaum. Jesus had moved to Capernaum probably just before he moved or just before he left for Jerusalem. This man had heard about Jesus' miraculous power, miraculous power, His son was at the point of death. His son was just not sick. He was at the point of death. He had heard that Jesus was coming back home to Galilee, but he couldn't wait. Before Jesus got back to Capernaum, his son might die. He had hurried to Cana. Desperate. We would all be desperate. You think about that. Maybe your child has been just that sick at the point of death. He was desperate. Now John introduces this desperate man coming by reminding you that Cana is where he turned the water into wine. Why in the world would he say that? Remember, he's writing... He's writing a scroll. He's writing on a scroll. He's writing the gospel. It was just several paragraphs before that that he had described it. Why in the world would he go back and say it again? Why would he go, you know, why would he do that? John didn't need to reference that. Here is Jesus probably within a mile of where he turned the water into wine at a wonderful party. And John sets these two scenes. You see it. Here's Jesus at the wedding feast changing water into wine. And here's a man whose son's dying, and he sets those side by side. man desperate, hopeless. He had wealth, 
He had power. He had position. But he was utterly, utterly helpless. This week I, I read a quote and I had to write it down because I wanted to keep it where I could see it. Quote, money and positions can buy a bed, but they cannot buy sleep. Money and position can buy a great house, but money and position cannot buy a home. Money and position can buy acquaintances, but they cannot buy true friends. End quote. This man was desperate because even though he was wealthy and had the position and had the power, he couldn't do anything. But John, wanted to point out that this Jesus who's about to deal with a desperate man's prayer and a sick son that's dying, he sets it opposite of Jesus. Not healing at all. Not raising someone from the dead. But Jesus at a party making fabulous wine. Let me ask you a question. Let's make this plain. When do you seek Jesus the most? Answer, when do you seek Jesus the most? The same, the same time that I do. When I'm at the end of my rope in a desperate situation, when I'm in dire straits, that's when I go to prayer. That's when I pray the most. You know, I say the blessing before meal. I thank God for the blessings during the day, but not with intensity, not desperate. When all is well, when there is health, when there's food, when there's wine for the party, I don't seek Jesus with the same intensity. John was putting these two miracles side by side as they happened in the same location. The first was a party. The second was a young boy dying. And Jesus was an integral part of both. Who provided the wine? Jesus did. Who provided the healing? Jesus did. In this great and wonderful time, who provides? Jesus did. In this awful situation, who provided? Jesus did. So I'll repeat the question. What makes us pray desperate prayers? We say, well, we don't run to Jesus with the same desperation in the good times. Well, maybe we should. For some time now, I've been praying that God would teach me personally, this is a personal prayer, to live a thankful life. Now, we're apt to think of ourselves, I live a thankful life. If I had, from your coming in this morning, if I had stood at the door and asked everyone, everyone, if I would have asked just Justin, are you thankful? Justin, well, of course I'm thankful. If I'd asked Rick, Rick, are you thankful? Yes, I'm thankful. 
Ask all of our seniors, are you thankful? Good people are thankful. Polite people are thankful. We think we're good people. We think we're polite people. One of the first lessons that we learn when we're growing up, when we're from the crib, we learn. Say thank you. You know, mother stands over the crib, tries to get this child that, you know, is a year away from talking. Say mama. Say my name. Daddy stands over the crib. Say daddy. You know, Mama never says, say daddy. And dads never say, say mama. We want to be named first. But what comes right after that? What's the first thing? You say thank you. I have seen wonderful battles. I love this. I give a child something, a two-year-old something. And the mother or father immediately says, say thank you. And that child. Hmm. They got it. They're concentrating and a battle ensues. I have more fun. It's like I'm demonic when it comes to this. I love watching parents and, and children fight it out like this. The point is that we all think that we're thankful. Yet as I read scripture, I'm forced to say that I'm not so thankful. All through scripture, we see a constant command. God says, you or to pray every time, giving thanks. I'm just going to read one. We could read enti- we could read until midnight, and we wouldn't exhaust the passages in the Bible that say this. But only one, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Look at it with me. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God says, don't you ever come before me requesting something where you're not Giving thanks. You better give thanks first. Ask a question. When is the last time you thank God for the salt on your table? I bet you you've never thanked God for the salt on your table. I hadn't. Well, I have now. But when I started this effort in saying, God, teach me to live a thankful life. I never thank God for the salt. But salt is wonderful. It brings wonderful flavor to food. I guarantee you, if you go home in the next two days and your wife takes the salt off the table, you're going to say, where's the salt? What happened to it? Husband, you take it away, your wife's going to say, where's the salt? When I was young and living at home and I would use a lot of salt on my food and my parents would say, John, stop. You can't use so much salt. It's not good for you. And I wouldn't say, oh, but it tastes good. I would look at them and tell them a great scientific truth. I would say, I am saving my life. Thank you very much. I said, what do you mean you're saving your life? You can't live without salt. You'll die. You don't have salt, you die. I'd once read a National Geographic article about a tribe in Africa, and they spent their entire existence searching for salt. Made an impression on me. My parents would just roll their eyes. So I've begun, I have begun listing 
all the smallest things during the day in prayer and saying, thank you, Father. Thank you for the salt. Thank you for the eggs. Thank you for the mushrooms and onions in the eggs. I'm beginning to understand that there should be a celebration every day in my home because it's not 10,000. It's not 20,000. Blessings is far more than that, that I don't even see during the day that Jesus provides. Jesus, the winemaker, is providing these. That's what John has set before us. And I never mentioned these, never mentioned these things in my prayer. You know, I'd looked at these things. Maybe as if I deserved them. Ten, twenty thousand blessings go unnoticed. Maybe I provided them. Maybe I deserved them. But I certainly didn't go with any kind of desperation in prayer, thanking profusely for all these things I had received. People, we go to him when the children are sick, when we're in deep financial trouble. And here he is providing incredibly every day. And we don't even see it. And we never mention it. Those two things are exactly opposite of each other here. And it's the same Jesus. Jesus, the winemaker and the provider. Jesus, the healer. Jesus is also there at the worst and darkest times. And we're more apt to seek him out, just like this man did. In his desperation, though, what was the man seeking? Would this man have searched out Jesus in desperation to hear him preach? What drove him to Jesus? His son was dying. There was evidence that Jesus could heal him. Jesus had been proclaiming through the whole country that he was Messiah. That was news. Did this man, as soon as he heard that, did he run to Jesus and say, are you really the Messiah? No. Jesus was making the claim far and wide, but we do not hear from this man until his child was dying. You say, why are you telling us this? Because that's exactly what Jesus said. Look at it. Jesus' answer to the man's request seems harsh. He says, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. You're only coming to me because your son has died. I don't think Jesus was saying this just to this man. Remember the whole, he was saying that to everyone. You're standing by the road. You're watching for me. Just, you just want to see another miracle. What's he going to do next? But even then, it does seem a bit harsh, doesn't it, that Jesus said that to him. Man asked for his son to be healed, and he said, you won't believe it unless you have signs. That's all you want. He was not focused, however, on Jesus being the Messiah. 
Jesus was saying, you're just here for the signs because I can do this. You don't care about me being Messiah. You really don't understand. I'm the Messiah of all of Israel. You know, there are Christians like this. There's Christians that constantly seek for signs from God. Weekly, I encounter, and I mean weekly, I encounter Christians who will reference some sign that they believe came from God. And sometimes it happens. It's happened to me. But there's Christians that their whole Christian life, this is their whole existence. They must have miracles. I was reading a Christian magazine about an evangelical group that were meeting at a well-known hotel in a very large city. It was sort of a spiritual convocation that went on for the week. And there was a picture in the magazine, great picture of the, this hotel, 20, 25 stories. And in this picture, <clears throat> there, was, there were clouds around the top of the hotel. And under the picture was a cap, caption that God sent a halo around that hotel to show his blessing. During that week. Could that have happened? Yeah. It, it could have happened. But as I read the article. Uh, it was just paragraph after paragraph. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. That had occurred during that week. What? What would they have said? If there wasn't any, quote, halo at the top of that building. What would they have said if there was no miracle? What if there had been great, great preaching? What if there had been people converted? What if there had been coming out of that convocation a, a movement that would have provided food for an impoverished part of the city. That would have been mundane. Wasn't a miracle. So what happens when Jesus refused? And this is, you can see this building. Jesus hadn't, he didn't answer the man. The man did not know he was going to heal him. He said, you're just here looking for a sign. You're just here because I can heal. You don't care about who I am. So what if Jesus does not heal? Sometimes Jesus says, no to our request for relief. What happened to Gethsemane? Jesus was on his face prone before his father. Jesus was desperate. He was pleading that the father take that cup from him. And his father said, no. Christians in Russia, China, Christians pray desperate prayers that they would be kept from persecution and kept from prison. And God didn't keep them from persecution and God didn't keep them from prison. What do we do when God does not bring supernatural healing or deliverance? Sometimes people walk away angry. They walk away mad. My God wouldn't do that. Does this mean that Jesus is powerless in those situations? No. 
There's not a square inch inside the universe where he's not omnipotent. There's not, there is not a millisecond of time that he is not omnipotent. When we pray for our child to live, when we pray for our sick child to live, most of us have done that. To be spared from the awful results of this disease. Do we pray with the same desperation that that child will know Jesus? There's something worse than physical death from disease. There's eternal death that is of much greater danger. Maybe a family member is going through an economic crisis, a disaster, and we've become desperate in our prayers for that family member. Are we just as concerned that he or she build their home upon Scripture? Are we desperate about that prayer? So after Jesus makes this confrontational statement, the official, to his credit, did not retreat. Look at what he said. Sir, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus simply says, go, your son will live. The man believed. We read, the man believed the word Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Well, he just took Jesus' word. Jesus said that, go. And the man walks away. But the story does not end there. On the way home, his servants meet him to tell him this child's now recovering. And he said, when did the recovery start? They said, the seventh hour. That was the exact time he spoke to Jesus and Jesus spoke to him. But the story does not end there. Then we read the most important words of the story. And he himself believed, after his servants told him that, and he himself believed in all of his household. Question, how did John know that? Well, you say John lived, John and James lived in Capernaum. Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum. Jesus lived in Capernaum. Subsequent to this, this man, John was saying, I know this man. He came to faith in the Messiah. He and his whole family believed. He and his whole family followed Jesus. Now the man had already taken Jesus at his word. He believed his word that the child would be healed. He didn't necessarily believe Jesus Messiah. But when his servant said, your son's getting well, he said, he's the Messiah. And he became a follower of Christ. So what was the greatest miracle here? This is the point. We've covered it. Jesus spoke and restored the boy's physical health. Is that the point? Just another miracle? No. Then something greater happened. The man and his family received eternal life. That is why John told the story. Right there. So. We're done. Almost one paragraph in Luke chapter 10. 
Jesus sins. Now hold on. Say, I wish we were done right now, John. You say the benediction we believe. This has been good. No, because the best part is this. Here's the message for us. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends 72 of his disciples out into the countryside to preach and to teach, to minister. And they come back with these incredible stories. They said, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. The teaching and the preaching were wonderful, but we even had miracles. We had authority over the demonic. We had authority over people that were demonic. And what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say to them? Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Have you ever said, you know, if I were healed like that by Jesus, if I were healed from the disease that this boy had, or I'd been crippled and I'd been healed by Jesus, I'd be saved. I would believe. No. There's something greater. You need to understand, if you know Jesus Christ, if he's in your heart, if you've trusted in the Jesus of that cross and look to him for salvation and you love him with your heart, mind, and soul, you have the greatest healing in the world. Every healing in all the gospels pales in comparison The greatest miracle that day was not that Jesus healed his son. The greatest miracle was that the man and his family believed and followed Jesus. Their lives were changed for eternity. Amen. We're going to sing that now. We're not going to sing about how Jesus healed, healed us physically and performed that kind of miracle. We're going to talk about what Jesus has done in saving us.